Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 7. And uh, before I read it, I just want to start out with a little bit of a disclaimer as about what's going to happen over the next, uh, I'll say, 30 minutes, hopefully. And uh, preaching, Noah, is sort of difficult in the sense that there are probably two groups of people here. There are the groups of people who see Noah as literal history, that everything that is here in Genesis is read in such a way that you are experiencing this man Noah and all the things that he went through. And I would imagine it's a good portion of people here. I would say that I fit into that camp. But I'm not going to preach in that manner because there are a portion of people here, and maybe that's the good portion of it, who see it as a story or an allegory. So rather than go back and forth and try to say, well, if you see it from an allegory's perspective or you see it from a literalist person's perspective, I'm not going to do that today. So please don't send hate mail, which says, I cannot believe you don't believe in the uh, inerrancy and infallibility of God's word. I do. I don't want somebody else saying, I can't believe you don't believe in science. How can you be so closed-minded? So please just understand, for me, there's a balancing act that what I'm going to try to do, whether you see it as an allegory or you see it as a literal story, to bring out what I think are some of the lessons that we can learn about God and what Noah teaches about faith. Is that fair enough? So trust me, it's a balancing act. I'm probably going to miss, and I might get all of you mad at me. And I might actually be the first guy to leave under cloud. How about that? (laughs) Get rid of that guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. All right, is that fair enough? So we're going to preach on Noah today. And, and uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So I want to preach on Noah today. Now as we do that, I just want to tell you, I'm not going to preach on this Noah. Whom I'm grieving of, but that's another story. And I'm not going to preach on this Noah. Anyone know who he is? That's his dad. That's Yannick Noah, famous tennis player, 1970 area. Oh, some of you guys weren't even born then, right? So you wouldn't know who he is. Not, not that Noah. Not this Noah. <laughs> I did teach him that move. Uh, not this Noah. The... Says one second here. That... Does that not look like Heath? I looked at it and I said, man, that's Heath. Uh, anyway, so not that Noah, but actually this Noah. All right, excellent. So the cool thing is, I'm not really good with this stuff. And uh, usually, you know, Pastor Dave, he does the PowerPoints and he has the verses and the names and all that stuff. And so this morning while we're in our meeting uh, as pastors, uh, Pastor Jared said something that made me change the points of my sermon. So that's why I'm glad I didn't spend hours on PowerPoint because I would have said all that time was wasted. So with that in mind, let's just breathe for a second and head into Noah, all right? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith.
faith. I want to kind of look at this passage from two ways. I want to try to get us to see who is God and what does he do in the midst of this and how does Noah respond to who God is. And that's where some of the changes are. The, the message overall is not going to change, just the points or ideas. And in order to get a grasp of what's going on in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, I want us to flip over to Genesis chapter 6. And just kind of give us an idea of a couple things in terms of groundwork that we need in order to understand what's going on with Noah. So chapter 6, let's read verse 5. It says this, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. And then if you slip down to verses 11 and 12, it reads, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence, God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. The idea here is that this is a wicked time. And I know, in a sense, when you look at Noah, what you're saying is he lived in the bad old days. Most of us, when you get to be my age, like 50 and beyond, sometimes we think of, you know, I remember the good old days. Like, I remember growing up in the city of Chicago, and I never remember so much crime and so many shootings and so many things that are going on. Those were the good old days. We often talk about how we could walk. You know, I could be seven, eight-year-old. I could walk through the neighborhood. I had no fear of some guy pulling up on the curb and saying, hey, little boy, come here, here's some candy. Or my mom asked. You know, we didn't have any fears like that. Me now, I don't even let my kids go to the park a half a block away because I'm looking for the traffickers. You know what I mean? Because those are the good old days in the 70s. I was young in the 70s and the 60s. But those are the good old days. But Noah didn't live in the good old days. Noah lived in the bad old days. And I also know that sometimes as preachers, we like to say, oh man, we are living in the end times. It is so bad right now, the wars and all the terrible things that are going on. And to be honest with you, I don't know if it's ever really changed. I think all throughout history, we've just been living in some really bad times with maybe some peaks of good times where you can actually say those are the good old days. Noah himself lived in a wicked time period. It was bad. It was so bad, as it says here in verse 5, that... Wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination and the thoughts of man's heart was only on evil all the time. In other words, his constant thinking is, how can I do wrong? How can I walk away from God? How can I reject God? How can I hurt somebody? How can I get whatever I want to get out of this? He's basically living in a very, very corrupt culture. Here's God's response in verses 6 and 7. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. Verse 7 reads, So the Lord said, I will wipe them out. But move on a little bit. And it gets here to the end of the verse. It says, For I am grieved that I made them. So I, I sometimes, you know, and I remember years ago, Pastor Dave was sharing how Noah is not that happy animal story, but it's really a tale of judgment. It's a, it's a real difficult thing to go through because we're dealing with a very corrupt culture. But when we get to the point here of seeing who God is, what we see is that God is grieved. God is grieved in his heart, that his special creation, the very creation that he loves so much, has rejected him completely so that every thought that they have is toward wickedness and evil. It's kind of like, for those of us who have children, if you have a rogue child. You know what I mean? The kind of kid, and as a, as a parent of five, uh, I grew up in a sense um, in constant fear that one of my children will go rogue. 
in the sense that, you know, they're going to grow up and uh, they're going to join a gang, uh, be involved in drugs, and, and spend years upon years in prison. Now, mind you, my, no, I don't know if my kids are going that way, but I'm just telling you how I feel. Those are my fears. Just waiting for the day when you realize I have a rogue child. Now, my response is not going to be, oh, you deserve to go to jail. Excellent. I hope you spend life in prison for what you've done. As a parent, even with a rogue child, I'll be grieved. And that's, I think that's my big fear is the grief that I would experience if one of my children actually goes that way. And I'm going to be honest with you, I feel that way most of all with the littlest one because we're so close and all the things that we go through. And I'm always afraid. I keep thinking in my mind, man, I mean, she loves me so much, hugs me so much. It's really cool. Finally got, you know, one that really loves me more uh, than mom. This is great. Uh, daddy's little girl, cool. And I keep thinking to myself, I'm waiting for the day when she's going to break my heart and go rogue. You know what I mean? So if you can kind of get the feeling of that, this is where God is at. God is not holy in the sense that he says, you know what, these guys have done wrong, and I'm just going to wipe them out. But the fact that he is grieved, <coughs> he's very grieved. Twice it mentions that he's grieved about what has happened. So we're getting a picture of God who is ultimately a holy God, as we see in the rest of the verses, but he is a God who is grieved because he loves his people. So we have this very corrupt culture in which Noah lives in, and we have this very um, involved God who is grieved about what is happening in the world that he has created, and he's come to this place as a holy God, showing us in the story, allegory or true story, that God is serious about sin. And he says, even though I am grieved, verse 7, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. In other words, what we see of God is not only a God of love and compassion, but we also see a God who is holy and takes holiness serious. He doesn't just say, hey, you know what? Do whatever you want, that in the end, when we all gather today or together, in the end of times, it's all going to be kumbaya, everybody's good, let's all go on to the next life. No, there's a seriousness about God and sin, so much so that judgment is about to come. But in the midst of all of this, there's one man who stands out. Verses 8 and 9. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 9, this is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. So let's get into this. Two points I want to give us today, uh, what we can learn from Noah Noah's story, what we can learn about God, and what we can learn about Noah as I switch it around. So let's go back to Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. And I'm going to stop right there because my first point is this. Originally, I thought, here's a good point. Noah obeyed God when it didn't make sense. And then when Pastor Jared said that thing about focusing God, I realized I, I missed the point or the full point of what's trying to be communicated. And it's this, I think, is that God does ask us to do things that don't make sense. So now the emphasis is on God. God, not us, but God does ask us, not sometimes, but frequently ask us to do things that don't make sense. So whether you take this story literally or as an allegory, what God is asking Noah is to build this huge boat in the middle of the desert. 
Has anyone ever come up to you and said, hey, you know what? I have a, a, some great property in Florida for you to buy. And the implication behind that is that it's swampland. And any idiot that buys swampland in Florida is throwing their money away. Right? That does not make sense. But God says, hey, Noah, build this big old boat, which is about 150 yards long, you know, like a a football field and a half, four stories high. You build it in the middle of the desert, man. Okay, you got that? Build this because you know what? Something is going to happen. This huge old flood is going to happen. And so you build this boat, because I don't imagine if I'm Noah, I'll take him literally or allegorically, is sitting there thinking, okay, hold on a second. Flood in the middle of the desert. How is that going to happen? That does not make sense. And you're not asking me to build a little boat like a pleasure boat, you know, like a, a little one that we can take out on Lake Michigan. You're asking me to build a big old boat that's really, really, really large, <clears throat> and then encourage me to have all these animals come on this boat with me, and we're going to hang out for a while. That is absolutely absurd. It is strange. It is awkward. It doesn't make sense. And based on, if you want to take timelines, this is going to be a 120-year process. So it's not like, hey, you know, let's go to the naval shipyards. We're going to build a boat. It's going to take us a couple months, and we're going to send it out, and everything's going to be cool. It's going to be for the next 120 years, here's your project. Now do it. Build this boat in the middle of this desert for this huge flood that's about to come. Totally does not make sense. But God asks him to do just that. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) So as I reflected on this, And if you reflect on this, you're going to realize this is a pattern with God. Think about Abraham. Abraham, take your boy up to the mountain. Sacrifice him to me. But trust me, I told you he would be your heir, and he will, so I'm going to raise him from the dead. Abraham had never seen somebody get killed and be raised from the dead. That doesn't make sense. But he still went and did it. Then I thought about Gideon. Hey, Gideon, you have 300 guys. In the end, that's what he whittled them down to, 300 guys. And I want you to take on this army that's, you can't even count how many guys there are. You go, boy. You go and you take care of them. That does not make sense. Now, I might with an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, but we all know that stuff is fake. But in the real world, 300 against this large army does not make sense. And yet God still said, go and do it. And then he says that Jehoshaphat, as this army is getting ready to come to Jerusalem, again, another army that you cannot count, he says, don't go out there and fight, just go out there and have a worship time. That doesn't make sense. I mean, could you imagine if they had a, a, um, I was going to say a remix, a rematch uh, between uh, Pacquiao and Mayweather, right? And and God says to uh, Manny Pacquiao, he says, you go into the ring, and when you get in the ring, I just want you to start singing hallelujah, 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 and I'm going to knock them out. Does that make sense? Who, how many would pay for that, by the way? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Yeah, this guy, hallelujah, throws no punches, and the other guy just falls over. Knocked him out. It doesn't make sense, and yet that's what God tells Jehoshaphat. It's crazy, but it doesn't stop there. He turns to Philip in the book of Acts. He has this flourishing ministry, and he says, Get up! You go run to the desert 
tell this guy about Jesus and then go somewhere else and carry on the ministry. That does not make sense. God tells Barnabas, listen, go get Paul. So here Barnabas is in the midst of this flourishing ministry. People are coming to Christ like crazy. And he says, time out, church, time out. God has told me to go get Paul. I'll be back in a couple months. I'm good. That does not make sense. Paul traveling all through Asia. God says, you know what? I was leading you towards Asia, but I really want you to go towards Europe. And he stops him several times. It doesn't make sense. The cross does not make sense. Think about this. If I am God and I'm not, if people tick me off, I'm crushing them like bugs, especially if I have the opportunity to do that. And to get a sense of how I feel like that way, the only time I've ever enjoyed sports in all of my life is the years the Bulls crushed everyone and won six championships. I cannot watch anymore because I don't know of any team that is that dominating. Okay? So you get a picture of if I were God, the only way I could enjoy things is if I were crushing people. But God says what? Instead of coming down there and crushing people, he says, I'm going to give my son to die on the cross. The ultimate sign of defeat. You have been defeated. Does anyone ever remember that song by Carmen? And, again, this is dating me, man. If you're, like, in the 70s, that, that one where he's in the ring and, and uh, you know, Satan knocks Jesus down and it's like, he's down and out for the count. Satan's thinking he's won. And then God starts the countdown and instead of going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 10, you lose. He goes 10, 9, and Satan's like, what are you doing? You're not supposed to do it that way. And then he realizes in the end, even though this is the knockout punch, it still doesn't make sense that God has gone so far to do so much for people who have turned away from him and rejected him. Instead of just saying, that's it, I'm done with you, he says, I am not done, but I'm going to get even more involved and I'm going to give you my son. God asks us to do things that just don't make sense. I think that's what we learned from Noah. God is asking Noah to do something that absolutely does not make sense. Now, I don't know about anyone here, but I really struggle to pray. I have a hard time with it, easily distracted by so many things that are going on. So I picked up this book, Seven Prayer Guides, talking about people and their histories. And I started reading, and I hate reading these stories, about a man named Reese Howells. And Reese Howells has a life filled of God speaking to him about things that don't make sense. And one of his stories, several of his stories I'll share with them. One of them is pretty simple. He had an uncle who was an invalid for years upon years. And him and his uncle were praying, and they heard God say, on this day, I will heal your uncle. I will heal him. That's it. It's a couple weeks away, but I will heal him. And I'm reading that story, and I'm going, oh, so we know how this is going to end. The guy's going to get healed. On the day before, the uncle is in the worst of conditions that he's been in in a while. But what do these two guys do? They go, you know what? We believe God. Even though it doesn't make sense, and even though it looks like he's on his deathbed, the next day, literally on May 16th, the day that God told them that that he would heal the uncle, what happens? The uncle who cannot walk gets out of bed completely restored. That does not make sense to me you would think that there's no way that this is going to happen. And why doesn't it happen more rapidly? Why does it just happen to him? That does not make sense to me at all. And this week, as a personal reminder, 
someone from my first church called and said, hey, I haven't talked to you for a while, which always makes me nervous because that means they're looking for something, which of course she was. But neither here nor there. We got into conversation and she goes, yeah, I remember those years and I was really sad about the way that it happened. And, um, and she said, have you ever talked to this person? And I said, yeah, I talked to this person and we're really great friends now. Uh, helped him get a ministry position. We meet regularly. We talk and she goes, man, that doesn't make sense. Because how can you forgive someone who has hurt you so much? I'm going to be honest with you. I, I think only because God does something in us. That does not make sense. God says forgive. How do you forgive your enemies? When we go through this trafficking stuff, I think to myself, how does a little girl, and and I have three of them, how does a parent sell their child into the trade blatantly to make their own money and that child then has to turn around and hear the words forgiveness? But it happens because that's what God asks, and it doesn't make sense. I fully believe, not just from Noah, but from all of Scripture, that God asks us to do things that don't make sense. He just does. Why do you take a guy from the University of Illinois, Chicago, and send him down to Texas? That doesn't make sense. Right? I mean, why are you going to go from this nice weather city to Tornado Alley? Right? It's craziness. Why does, why does God send people who are, are full of life and have so much potential and make them missionaries for crying out loud? God asks us to do things that doesn't, that don't make sense. That, that's my first point. Noah's response is, in, in a simple way, is Noah obeyed God when it didn't make sense. And how did he do it? He did it immediately. He didn't sit back and say, hold on a minute. Let's get a committee together. So he calls his family in and he says, hey, you know what, this is what God asked me. What do you think we should do? Let's talk about this. Let's see if this, well, should we work out this? Should we do, let's figure out the logistics. He just did what God asked him to do and he did it immediately. And I think that's the thing about Noah that says something about his faith. When God asks him to do something that doesn't make sense, rather than making excuses, which I would do well making, rather than rationalizing why I can't do it now, Noah does it right away. And then not only does it right away, but he does it for a really long time. Because while Noah is doing this for a really long time, I have to imagine that people are walking around and going, uh, what are you doing? You're building a boat? What? Are you dumb? <laughs> you don't make sense. God told you. Oh, yeah. Okay. God told you. Get that one. So for 120 years in the sense of an allegorical way, even, if you do the timelines, or a literal sense, for 120 years, this is what he is faced with and must do something and perseveres in the midst of all this until the ark is actually finished. It does not make sense. Yet Noah obeyed, and he obeyed immediately. No rationalizations whatsoever. Make sense? Sometimes, often, many times, God asks us to do something that does not make sense. Second thing. Let's read it again. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, which would have been this incredible flood, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. 
My second point was going to be Noah knew or walked with God, but I think the better point is, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. Because I'm thinking to myself, how does Noah do this? And the answer is found here in the verse where it says, in holy fear. And the idea or the word here is a sense of, um, of a genuine spiritual devotion. Like, Noah is really devoted to walking with God. And if you look in the, the, the Genesis account, what you see is there are three men that walked with God in Genesis. And uh, who would you want to guess, just to kind of get you guys a little bit active, uh, who, who are they? Uh, and don't say Noah. You know, like, hey, I know who it's Noah. Okay, because we got that. But there's two others. Who else? Enoch. Yes, Enoch. Whom I believe is going to be one of the two people that comes back in the book of Revelation. But I'm sorry. Is so anyone else? The other one? Abraham, yes. You must be a community group leader. We have community and everybody comes together and we love on each other, right? Yes. Amen, brother. Okay. But these people are walking with God in the midst of corruption. Enoch didn't live in the good old days. Noah didn't live in the good old days. And Abraham wasn't living in the good old days either. And we don't live in the good old days. But what is going on here is that God is faithful because what God did was promise that I will save your family. I will make a covenant with you. I will bring salvation to your household. And you can trust me. Now Noah, if he had not been walking with God and would walk with God afterwards, could have said, I have no idea who you are. Why should I trust you? How many of you get those emails that say, Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm from Nigeria. My rich husband just died, and I feel generous, and I want to give you some money. How many of you responded to that? Other than me. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. Why didn't I do that? Because I don't trust those people. If somebody comes up to me and says, Dude, man, I have like $10 million for you. I'll put it in your bank account if you tell me your routing number and your checking account. And give me your birthday and social security at the same time, and I'll take care of it. We would think, what? Huh? Because we don't trust them. But if Pastor Dave came up to me and said, He's going to give me $10 million, I'll give it all to him. Because I know he's going to give me $10 million, right? When you win the lottery, if you ever play it. He's going to give me that because I trust him, because we have walked together. You know, I'll be honest with you, I I trust him completely. I won't let him hug me, but I trust him. (laughs) Well, so that means I kind of don't trust him about certain areas, but that's another story. But do you understand what I'm saying? Noah can obey God because he knows that God is faithful. God, what you're asking me to do to build this ark does not make sense at all. But I trust you because I have been walking with you and I know that you are faithful. And for that reason, even though I look like the biggest idiot ever, I will spend the next 120 years and I will build that ark because I know that when all is said and done, this thing that you said will happen is going to happen. Because God is faithful. And that is what Noah teaches us, because he walks with him. He walks with him. Another story from Reese Howells, because there's so many of them, is this guy so trusted in the faithfulness of God that when God said, you are to go to Africa as missionaries, they went to the train station and they didn't have a ticket. No ticket whatsoever. 
They had just enough money to get to the station that they needed to get to in order to connect to finally get to the place where they needed to get to in order to get to Africa. And they're looking at each other, him and his wife, and they said, we have no money whatsoever to get on this train. And they decided that because God said, we are going here and he's going to give us the money, we are getting on the train. So they get on the train and they get in line to buy tickets and they're sitting there waiting for somebody to come and give them their money and they keep walking closer and closer and closer and closer and finally they get to the ticket window. They have no money and it's only then does someone come along and pay for those tickets. How do you get in line and do that? If it's me, I'm calling people. Hey, can I borrow money or something? Maybe that's what God wants us to do. I'm going to do anything and everything in my power to make sure that God is faithful. But what they said is, we just know God is faithful and we're just going to go right ahead. There's a little fear and trepidation, but we're going to go and do what we're supposed to do. And God provided because they knew that God is faithful because they had been walking with him. So for Noah, it wasn't, I would imagine, no sense of like, whoa, hey, wait a minute. Should I or shouldn't I? It was, if God says, that's it. When the first church, I already explained to you, when we were going through that, it took me five years to actually finally listen to what God said about forgiveness. I think that's horrible, personally. Five years. Because God was saying something which didn't make sense, which was forgive. My thinking was, God, I will forgive them once they fail. Because then once they fail... I can say, ha, told you so. And by the way, I forgive you. So I look good, right? You know what happened? Five years, they failed, and I said, I forgive you. But only because I was wrong. Holding on to that. It didn't make sense. I wonder what could have happened if I said to God, I'm just going to do this now. I'm going to do it immediately. And I'm not going to wait five years and wait for them to fail in order to be happy. See, Noah is teaching us that by walking with God, you begin to understand that God is faithful. And when God asks you to do something that does not make sense, you can do it immediately because you know that God is faithful. Abraham immediately packed up the bags and went to the mountain. Gideon immediately got rid of all the people around him, and then they went and did what God told them to do. Jehoshaphat, immediately after their prayer meeting, said, okay, great, it's late tonight, let's all go to sleep, eat breakfast, and then we're going to take care of this. The same thing with Barnabas, the same thing with Paul, all throughout Scripture, because people walk with God, they can get to a place and say, God is faithful. Dave, didn't you talk about Polycarp a few weeks ago? What did Polycarp say after all that? You think I'm going to reject God? No, I'm not. And I'm going to tell you why. Because even though what makes sense for me is to go, hey, Caesar's Lord, cool, thanks. And then, thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me. Everything is cool. He didn't say that. He said, I cannot do this because God is faithful. I'm sorry. I do not want to be persecuted. I do not want to be martyred. I do not understand how anyone can do that. It does not make sense to me. But they do it because they trust that God is faithful. So as I look through this, I think there's two challenges here. Number one challenge. I think Noah, I shouldn't say that. Let me rephrase that. I think God, through the life of Noah, 
challenge us, challenges us to believe God even when it doesn't make sense. I believe God, through Noah, challenges us to believe God even when it doesn't make sense. I'll be honest with you, it does not make sense from a human perspective to follow Christ today. Or even to be radical about it. Maybe that's taking it a step further because you can be religious and spiritual and still get away with it. It doesn't make sense to make certain stands because you just should go along with the culture. And if you go along with the culture and you join the culture and then you can show them a different way as you're going along with the culture. No, it doesn't make sense when God says, stand up and be salt and light. God, through Noah, challenges us to believe God even when it doesn't make sense. And then God, through Noah, challenges us to live for God when people around us are not. I think those are the challenges. I think the big thing about Noah's faith is that he believed God when it didn't make sense. He immediately responded in absolute obedience, even though everyone around him said, no, we're going to do what we want. He said, yes, God, I will do what you want because you are faithful. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you that you are faithful to your word. You are a faithful God. And again, in the midst of the good and the bad, in the mundane, in the trying, in the difficult, in the times when we may even think otherwise. We want to say, whether we are fully engaged even now, that God, you are faithful. And like the father of the young boy, sometimes we even confess, Jesus, help me in my unbelief. God, you are faithful. We don't want to say it because we're not trying to avoid the pains of life because sometimes we just need to go through those. But we want to say it because throughout all of history, not just people in the Bible, but those who have followed you generation after generation have proven that you do what you say. That you are an ever-present peace when our lives are falling to pieces. And like a father, you comfort, you carry, and you love your children in the midst of their pain and sometimes even in the midst of our rebellion. God, our prayer is Help us to see your faithfulness. Open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to see, to see, to receive, to believe that you have not forsaken us, but that you've always been with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.